We have a, a bunch of questions from last week, seven in all, and uh, they are on all sorts of different topics. Uh, the first one is, is it wise and helpful for Christians to visit mosques to show support after the Christchurch massacre? Well, if you haven't read already, uh, Jemima has written a terrific little article, I think, that answers this question very well. Um, and, and that is that I think it is a, it's a powerful way for us to show our love to our Muslim friends, uh, for us to perhaps go and to be present at a mosque or something like that. Uh, we want to show that as humans, fellow humans, that uh, we have been deeply shocked and stand in solidarity with them as people who have been hit so hard by this tragedy over in Christchurch. Uh, they, like us, were just gathering in a, in a worship service like ours and tragedy hit. We need to obviously be very clear that we don't believe the same thing as Muslims. We don't believe the same scriptures and they disagree with us theologically and we disagree with them theologically. And that is okay because we can do that in peace. But where it is that somebody decides to answer the question with a gun, uh, it it's means that they have misunderstood what uh, life is really about when it comes to that. And so I think that there is a way we can show our love, but obviously not show that we think exactly the same thing about the things that matter the most about our Lord Jesus. Question two, on the, the Song of Songs. Uh, in the Song of Songs, the woman's virginity was attractive to the man, but what about the man's virginity? Well, we do read specifically about the woman's virginity, I think, when it talks about her locked garden that he finds to be attractive. And I said to you that I think that was probably talking about her virginity. Uh, we certainly see throughout the whole of Song of Songs that it's the exclusive monogamous relationship in the Song of Songs. You know, one guy, one girl, together, no one else. Uh, that is the most beautiful expression of love. Uh, ironically, Solomon, whose name is attributed to the very first verse, is a guy who, to sort of quote a television show, had big love, um, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Uh, you would think that if you've got great love for one person, then 700 wives is going to be 700 times better. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Uh, in fact, even in the last chapter we're going to look at next week, even though Solomon is very rich in so many ways, there's a point where the love that this basic man and woman, one woman, one man, have for each other, is, is seen to be somehow more beautiful than even the wealth and the riches of Solomon, even the riches of the numbers of wives that he had. But more about that next week. Because it, it, the ultimate aim, really, is what I think we see right at the start of the Bible in Genesis 2. It's the one flesh relationship, one husband, one wife, together as one flesh. Uh, question three. What advice should we give to a Christian man whose wife withholds sex from him? Well, this is a, sounds like a very difficult situation. The most obvious text from the Bible in this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's in the New Testament. And it reads this. Let me read to you a few verses. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree 
to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. And afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's what the scriptures say about it. What do we learn from that? We're told that in a kind of a normal relationship, the husband and the wife are instructed by God to fulfil their spouse's sexual needs. The only exception is to be able to give yourself more completely to prayer. But even that is only a temporary restriction because it's important, again, to fulfil the needs of the spouse to avoid temptation that comes from Satan. So I'd suggest that if this is something that goes on for a long time in a relationship, then it may be important to see a marriage counsellor perhaps talk about some of these issues because I think the teaching from God uh, is clear in this. Every situation is different and complex but in this kind of situation I think it really should be attended to because of the warnings that are given there. There are two warnings about the fact that the devil may in fact, the Satan may tempt a couple because of the lack of sexual intimacy. It's interesting, isn't it? But it's a request for the husband to give and for the wife to give. Notice it doesn't say the, the wife can demand or the husband can demand. It's about giving. And if you want to talk more about that or ask further questions or send me personally, please do so. Question four, what does abundant praise mean in the context of Song of Songs? Well, I think it's sort of over the top, extravagant. You know, it's a bit like when someone says some things about you, you say, oh, I'm blushing now because you've gone over the top and said things that are way too nice about me. That's the kind of thing I think that's modelled here in the, the Song of Songs. I, I wonder what an Aussie Song of Songs would be like. You know, tell us about, about your wife. Oh, she goes, all right. <laughs> that's it, okay, right, fair enough. <laughs> but what we've got here is abundant, you know. It's like, woo, and away we go. Okay, question five. Uh, what was your most romantic gesture to Mandy? Look, thank you for this question so much. I asked Mandy, and, and uh, she, she had all sorts of ideas. Um, but when she, when she answered this, it was all to do with, um, mainly to do with time. Um, we, we have a bit of a habit that, that uh, we try and go away together, just the two of us, at least once, maybe twice a year for a, for a night or two. And uh, with our kids, we love our kids, we go on holidays with them sometimes, this is not a time for that. Um, that in itself is not necessarily romantic, but it does give opportunities for romantic things to arise. And we often have date nights where the two of us just, just go out and we leave the kids in front of the TV or something uh, from a very young age. Uh, uh, um, just to be away together. And you can't always do that. And uh, in terms of other romantic gestures, you could ask Mandy about that. Um, and, you know, but anyway, uh, but the thing is, we, we've always had the philosophy that one of the best ways we can serve our kids is by having a, a marriage that's strong. And we will sometimes say, sorry, kids, we need to devote some energy to this uh, so that you will have parents who, who have a, a deep love for each other. Uh, yeah, there you go. Two questions to come. These are tricky questions. Uh, if we sing old words in church, then won't visitors think that God's out of date? Well, because we do sing some words like um, thou's and these and holy, 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 like an old, old hymns and stuff like that, as well as some brand new ones that we've been learning as well. Well, my answer to this, let me see. I think it depends how old the visitors are. So if the visitors, this is my latest theory from this week, okay, it's just fresh, tell me if I'm an idiot, but uh, later. Uh, don't shout it out necessarily. Uh, but I think 
that if the visitors are the kind of age of people who have tattoos or are getting tattoos, which is kind of you're under 30, 30 or something like the postmods and so on, right? I'm speaking to some of you here. I think, from what I've read, the so-called postmoderns, right, which means maybe, I don't know what age that is, or there's a sweeping thing through our culture. There's a desire of postmoderns to connect with a tribe. And that's part of what the, the tats is, I, I think, to some extent. Uh, it won't be the same as everybody else. It'll be a, a thing that is connecting to something. And because of that, any expression of the history or the depth of that tribe will be valued. And so I think a postmodern will say, hey, I am actually, I'm a Christian and I'm going to put some, I'm going to write some Greek or Hebrew on my arm or something like that because I want to connect with something that's been around for thousands of years. It's my tribe. This is who I am. It's how I identify myself. And I'm very happy that it's in an ancient language or something like that because I want to connect with the past. Now, the moderns, and that's sort of 40 plus roughly or whatever, we went through a phase where we said anything that was old and antiquated, is, is, it muffles the truth. And we want to just get down to the raw, understandable stuff. And anything that might not be really understandable, let's get rid of it. Or let's, let's push it to the side and make something clearer and understandable. Can you see there's sort of two different ways? I may not have got that right, but my theory is, and I've, I've experienced this, that, that some of the, the younger Christians, when we put up a, a hymn that has a modern translation, so instead of be thou my vision, it's Lord be my vision, or instead of how great thou art, it's how great you are. Some of the younger people say, what have you done to our hymn? You, it's kind of like you've smashed the, the stained glass windows. I'm thinking, why are you wanting stained glass windows anyway? Haven't we moved on from them? And yet the older people, and I'm sort of somewhere in the cusp here, I don't know how old I am, but um, sometimes, but will say, no, but that is using language that we don't use anymore. It's not understandable and it doesn't make sense and it muddies the water. So let's make lyrics clearer. And there, there can be almost this sort of debate between the two different schools. And it's, and it's not a completely neutral thing because some people will feel fairly strongly about this. Uh, so what do we do with this? I don't know. We could stop singing. No, let's not do that. Um, I, I think that there's, uh, there are some older songs that will have an authenticity for postmodern. So How Great Thou Art and, and Be Thou My Vision. Uh, where possible, I think we can probably change some of the words. No, they don't need to all be saying art and thou. We can... We can change, but sometimes, like if they're in the title, How Great Thou Art or Be Thou My Vision, I think for authenticity, it makes sense to keep them in if we're going to sing them. But if you find that to be confusing or unhelpful, then there's a chance for you to, to say a different word yourself. You know, you could say, uh, Lord, be my vision or how great you are and so forth. It, it, it's trying to sort of, I don't think it's about tr pleasing all the people all the time, but I, I do think it's a, it's a case of us uh, thinking about why we do things and then doing the best we can with the circumstances. That's something to talk about over dinner. Uh, as is this one. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about this question this week. And that is, it's a follow-up to last week. And uh, this sometimes happens where I'm asked a question or something comes up in questions and I'll answer it and then people say, yes, but... And the question will pop up again with a sort of a more specific edge to it. Um, the question is, shouldn't Christians avoid non-spiritual yoga classes because its origin is in Hinduism? See, I mentioned last week that I, I've been attending a non-spiritual yoga class for a few years uh, that's run by an experienced physiotherapist uh, who uses non-spiritual yoga exercises to promote health and fitness. They're, they're 
basically it's just fitness stuff, right? On my very first visit to the class, I watched very, very carefully to try and see if there were any religious or spiritual aspects to that class. In the end, it seemed to me to just be stretching and breathing exercises. And I thought, I think, I think there's nothing in this particular class that is of concern to me spiritually. But recently, I've felt the need to reconsider whether I think it's a good thing for me personally to attend this class. And I think that's because ultimately all yoga classes have their roots in Hinduism. And so this week I've been reading and praying and thinking an awful lot about this. And I'd like to sort of share with you my thoughts and conclusions. This is going to be a slightly longer answer, but I think I need to sort of share it with you to help get inside my head and, and see the thinking. See, as I explored all this, I, I noticed one thing, and that is that some religious yoga people so people who are right into the spiritual side of it, they're actually quite annoyed at how their religion's been de-spiritualised by the West to become these sort of health and exercise classes. You know, it, it's, it, it's, it's a little bit like if someone said, hey, we want to have all the sociology of church, so we'll meet on a Sunday morning and we'll have some singing of the Australian anthem and we'll have uh, meditation times to be quiet, but we're atheists, I'd sort of say... That's weird, and what's more, you've stolen it from us Christians, and, but you're clearly you don't have any spiritual side at all. That's what some people will, will say of yoga, the modern kind with the health and exercise classes. Uh, what these people would say is they think that the kind of class I've been attending is just nothing more than a stretching and breathing class using their physical poses. And if anything, they'd prefer we didn't use the name yoga because they've got rid of the yoga bit of the yoga, so to speak. On the other hand, there are some Christians who believe that when a person does yoga poses, that even if they don't realise it, they're unconsciously worshipping a Hindu god and engaging in spiritual or even occult behaviour. This is what I've also heard. Um, so with these issues in mind, buzzing around my head, I turned again to the scriptures and a, and a similar question that was asked of the early Christians. And I alluded to this last week in the answer, but I want to explore it a bit more. And that's the issue of eating meat that's sacrificed to idols. Uh, it seems that it was difficult to get meat in the first century that hadn't been part of some sort of pagan worship. And it seemed that this was a problem for some Christians, but not for others. You know, most Christians would say, oh, they get their meat from Woolies or whatever, and well, whether or not someone said a prayer over it or not, doesn't matter. It's just meat. What does it matter? Others are like, no, that's a big thing. And so here's how Paul responded to this issue in 1 Corinthians 8. He said, so what about eating meat that's been offered to idols? Well, we all know that an idol's not really a god, and there's only one god. There may be so-called gods, both in heaven and on earth, and some people actually worship many gods and many lords, but for us, there is one god, the Father, by whom all things were created and for whom we live, and there's one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were created and through whom we live. In other words, the Bible's telling us that those idols that they're sacrificing the meat to, they're not true. They're fairy tale. They're fiction. And the Hindu gods that are supposed to be worshipped when we do an exercise class are not either. So when I try to shape my try to shape my body into one of the exercises in the class. It's not worshipping a Hindu god because those gods are not really gods. There's only one true god and that's our Father in heaven and our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that and you know that. 
But the problem is that not necessarily everybody knows that. And so in the next verse, the Apostle Paul says, However, not all believers know this about the meat sacrificed to idols. Some are accustomed to thinking of idols as being real. So that when they eat food that's been offered to idols, they think of it as the worship of real gods. And their weak consciences are violated. And so even though the scriptures are clear that all the other gods of the other religions are just ultimately fairy tales, the problem is that not everyone knows this. And if someone's been converted out of the New Age or out of Hinduism, then it might offend them to see a Christian doing some of the things that look like their former religion. And so Paul goes on in verses 9 to 11. He says, But you must be careful so that your freedom does not cause others with a weaker conscience to stumble. For if others see you with your superior knowledge eating in the temple of an idol doing yoga won't they be encouraged to violate their conscience by eating food that's been offered to an idol so because of your superior knowledge a weak believer for whom christ died will be destroyed so even though god's word says that the, the christians are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols and christians are free to go along to non-spiritual yoga exercise classes the challenge here that I've read to me, particularly this week, is that it may cause others to stumble in their faith and others have their faith destroyed. Now, that's a fairly strong word there. It's not compromised or challenged, it's destroyed. And that's the very last thing that I or any of us would want to have happen to a new believer in Jesus. And so this is how Paul concludes. You know, you'd think he might say, so I'm going to go around there and tell those weak believers what they've got wrong so that I can keep eating my meat. But instead, he says this, verse 13. So if what I eat causes another believer to sin, I'll never eat meat again as long as I live. For I don't want to cause another believer to stumble. It's pretty gutsy and costly. And so if eating meat sacrificed to idols or a yoga class causes another believer to sin, then Paul would never do that again, and nor should we. And so I've decided, therefore, that I'm going to stop attending the non-spiritual yoga fitness class. Even though the, the class that I've attended is non-spiritual, and I've said to you, I think it's innocent from, from my perspective. There are other yoga classes that other people go to that do have a whole lot of spiritual stuff in it. That I'm, you know, that The problem is that they might think that when I go to a class that's free of anything spiritual, that I'm saying that any yoga class is fine, and they think, oh, well, Jody must be fine with, with spiritual chanting and religious and Hindu stuff and everything like that. It's all the same. It doesn't matter, which is not what I think at all. And I don't want to send that message to anyone. And so I've, to, to serve and protect others, I've chosen to stop attending the yoga exercise class. If you, and if you go to something like that, uh, you, you need to think about it yourself. And, and uh, I've gone for the last few years and I've been okay with it. And you may continue to do that and that's fine. But I think for me, in my position in particular, I think it's an important thing for me not to do that. Uh, thank you for asking, for raising these questions and asking stuff and sending me back to do my homework and to pray and to think through these things. Um, and uh, any time you want to ask or challenge anything, write a question, ask me a question, and I'd love to, uh, to follow that through with you. And uh, if you want to talk with me about any of this tonight, come and see me afterwards. That's the longest question time, I think, ever. But thank you. I hope, thank you for listening and uh, for going on this journey of, of thinking through how to live together. Let me pray.
Our loving Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of truth. And we thank you that you are the one true Lord of all. And we pray for people who worship other invented gods and commit idolatry every day when they worship them and not you. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And we pray, people, for, pray for people who have uh, had a Hindu or a spiritualist yoga background who, who reject Jesus as Lord. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that they would come to know Jesus as well. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that in everything you would help us to, to be wise as Christian brothers and sisters and to do what is best for others as we seek to serve in the same way that Jesus served us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Going to pray. Thanks, Mark. Uh, confess our sin first.